Section eight of Ulysses S. Grant by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five, part five. The withers of the South were being wrung. Side failures did nothing to obscure the looming end. The great blows of Sherman, Sheridan, and Thomas sent their shocks to the heart of secession, and at the heart sat Grant holding Lee tight in Richmond. It is recorded of his ceaseless work at this period that on one day he wrote forty-two important dispatches. This winter was a time of thought for the weary, disenchanted southern people, and a time of desperation on the part of their political misleaders. In early February some of these had, in good faith, visited Grant to talk of peace, which talk he had tactfully evaded, while showing them all hospitality at his headquarters. With tact still greater, he had persuaded Lincoln to come and see them himself instead of sending Seward as an emissary. But this ended in nothing, save that Grant's character and kindness won the high admiration of the Confederate Vice-President Stevens, who wrote, He is one of the most remarkable men I ever met. He does not seem to be aware of his powers. Presently, again the South asked for a peace talk, this time through General Lee, who addressed Grant in a letter but Grant explained that terms of peace were not in his province, that his authority allowed him to act only regarding military subjects, such as the exchange of prisoners, and the matter stopped there. Lee's actions and spirit must be kept wide apart from those of the secession politicians at this time and at all times. Under the inspiration of Jefferson Davis, in the spring, a manifesto issued from the Confederate Congress, which struggled to goad the people to further efforts and sacrifices by such prophecies as follow. If the Union won, not only would the property and estates of vanquished rebels be confiscated, but they would be divided and distributed among our African bondsmen. Our enemies have threatened to deport our entire white population and supplant it with a new population drawn from their own territories and from European countries. The manifesto further says, Failure makes us vassals of an arrogant people. Failure will compel us to drink the cup of humiliation, even to the bitter dregs of having the history of our struggle written by New England historians. But even this excruciating peril seemed to the southern people, whose sons were dead and whose livelihood was gone, a less calamity than paying a thousand dollars of their money for a barrel of flour, and seeing their white-haired fathers and fifteen-year-old boys now forcibly thrown into the mill of blood. They wanted peace. They began to see in Jefferson Davis and his associates not a group of patriots, but a heartless, selfish, unscrupulous gang of intriguers. They began to go home from the army. There was no pay and no food for those who devotedly remained faithful to Lee. Grant was closing in. On April 3, Lee had to break cover and retreat from Richmond. Davis fled southward, and even while flying and with full knowledge of the crumbling house, he made another speech, 
to lure, if possible, more victims to the slaughter. We have now entered upon a new phase of the struggle, he said. Relieved from the necessity of guarding particular points, our army will be free to move from point to point, to strike the enemy in detail far from his base. Few could have believed him. But the soldiers, ragged and starved, followed and fought under their beloved Lee across the rainy fields of Virginia. No successes now changed a muscle of Grant's impassive face. Nothing but the capture of prisoners wakened visible elation in him. Each prisoner meant one enemy less to fight, one more life saved from fruitless sacrifice. Of his thoughts, only his actions show anything. When leaving headquarters at City Point on March 29 for this last struggle, he bade his wife good-bye with more than his daily tenderness, which was always great. He kissed her again and again at the door, as though their next meeting might never be, or would not be, until after much had happened. Then Lincoln walked to the train with him, said, God bless you all, with an unsteady voice, and they moved away to begin the taking of Richmond. The President, said Grant, is one of the few who have not attempted to extract from me a knowledge of my movements, although he is the only one who has a right to know them. Rain fell the next day and dulled the army's spirits, but weather made no change in the quiet general. And Sheridan rode in through the rain from his cavalry to headquarters, talked with the staff and with Grant, and departed to his coming battles like a meteor, leaving a trail of fired enthusiasm behind him. To this star in these final days the great wagon of the army seemed hitched. Whatever they separately did, and they were doing something during every hour, the fierce white light of Sheridan's genius beats upon the whole, and his deeds against the enemy are like strokes of lightning. On the morning of April 3, Lincoln came to Grant in captured Petersburg, and shook his hand, and poured out his thanks a long while. He said this was something like his expectations, only that he had imagined Sherman would have been brought from the South to share in it. Then he learned more of his general's tact, for Grant told him it was justice that the army which fought Lee from the beginning should fight him at the end and divide the glory with no one. Thus there could be no rancor. The close partisans of Meade, bitter over the great slight which history has so far done his fame, contend that he should have received the final surrender. But a later generation must think that this belonged to the general-in-chief. Had Grant's brooding mind been occupied with any thoughts save how best to end the matter, and how best to be merciful to the vanquished, he could scarcely be excused. But he thought neither of himself nor of any other of the victors. So he and Lincoln talked together a while at Petersburg, and understood each other well. For one thought filled them both, leniency. Then Grant went forward and learned of Richmond's fall. But no wish to enter and gloat over his prize was in the conqueror's heart. As he had asked at Donelson, why humiliate a brave enemy, 
and as at Vicksburg he had forbidden a cheer to be raised over the surrendered, or any taunt made as they passed, so now he avoided Richmond, and Lee's last march went on. The good deeds and the exploits of Sheridan's cavalry spurred the infantry to a race. The pursuit quickened, and Sheridan, striking blow on blow at the front, forever called back for greater speed. Lee must not escape to Danville. Lee must be headed off and compelled to fight again. Newhall, of Sheridan's staff, writes, All along the road were evidences of the demoralization of the enemy. Flankers and scouting parties of cavalry were continually bringing in scores of prisoners from the woods on either side, prisoners who would throw down their arms at the sight of blue uniforms and request to be captured. The steadfast women who begged them to turn back and face us again had been laughed to scorn. At dark on April 5, word came from Sheridan to Grant, I wish you were here. I see no escape for General Lee. Grant called for his horse and rode through the night to Sheridan and Meade, and on the next day at Sailor's Creek the clouds sank lower round Lee. Again Grant's actions reveal his thoughts. On Friday, April 7, he wrote Lee, The last week must convince you of the hopelessness of further resistance. I regard it as my duty to shift from myself the responsibility of any further effusion of blood by asking of you the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia. The unsuccessful battles, the dwindling regiments, the starvation, the retreat cut off, all this was plainly the end, and it stared Lee in the face. But on such a sight Lee had not at first the moral strength to open his eyes. The pain was too blinding. In his youth he had taken an oath to support the government, that government had educated him to be a soldier. He had been against secession. But when the time came to choose between secession and his oath, he chose, not without reluctance, to break his oath and turn against the government the teaching it had given him. And now here he sat with his lost cause like a broken idol in his hands. For a moment he shrank from the final pang of renunciation. I have received your note, he replied to Grant, on that same Friday, though not entertaining the opinion you express of the hopelessness of further resistance, I reciprocate your desire to avoid useless effusion of blood, and therefore ask the terms you will offer. And Grant, on Saturday, replied, Peace being my great desire, there is but one condition, that the men and officers surrendered shall be disqualified for taking up arms until properly exchanged. And then follows a touch of his perfect consideration for the defeated opponent. I will meet you, or will designate officers to meet any officers you may name. So did Washington write to Cornwallis, as Horace Porter reminds us. But Lee would himself go through with whatever had to come. Only still he pushed the bitter cup away from him. I cannot meet you with a view to surrender, he answered, 
but as far as your proposal may tend to the restoration of peace, I shall be pleased to meet you. And he named Sunday morning on the old stage road between the picket lines. This disappointing word came to Grant in the heart of the night, where he lay sleepless from many hours of pain in his head. Hunger, fatigue, exposure, and strain had brought on such torments that he had allowed remedies to be tried, but without avail. He lay down again. In the early hours he was found walking up and down outside, holding his head with both hands. He now wrote a third time to Lee, that he had no authority to treat of peace, but that peace could be had, and lives and property saved by the South laying down their arms. An urgency, almost an appeal, pervades this letter. He then declined advice to take an ambulance for the sake of his severe pain, and, mounting once more, proceeded toward Sheridan's front. It was near noon now, and as he went, a dispatch overtook him. Time and further mischances had brought Lee to the point. He requested an interview for the purpose of surrender according to the terms offered. As Grant read and understood that here in his hand at last lay peace, all pain left him. He dismounted, and by the roadside wrote his answer. While he was doing this, and hurrying forward to the meeting, Lee, some six miles away, lay waiting. Stretched on a blanket under an apple tree by the road, he contemplated the sunshine that bathed Virginia. Of his thoughts also only his actions reveal anything. When Grant's note reached him, he rose, and had soon ridden into Appomattox Courthouse, and in a house there waited for Grant. In a little while Grant reached the grassy village street, and there, dismounted, stood Sheridan and others. No significant words were spoken in this hour. Silence is the only reference that men make to great events which they are in the midst of. The ordinary greetings of every day were briefly given. The house where General Lee waited was pointed out to Grant, and he went in, leaving most of the others upon the porch. There they sat while General Lee's gray horse cropped the grass near them. Quietness was over the little village and the armies lying in the country round. The door opened and two of those on the porch were signed to come in. They entered, it is said, treading as those do who steal into a sick chamber while the rest still sat on the porch. When the door next opened, they rose. For out of it General Lee came, splendid, tall, gray-bearded, immovable. They looked at him and his sword and spotless gray uniform. He stood absently on the step, gazing away across Virginia, and two or three times he struck one hand against the other. Then, having spoken no word, and noticing his gray horse that had been brought him, he mounted and rode away. As he was going, Grant came through the door, saluted him in silence, and in silence also rode away. When Lee reached his army, the faithful men swarmed around him, 
cheering not their common misfortune, but the peace that he had made. They mingled their grief with his, grasping his hands, and then, almost overcome, he spoke. Men, we have fought through the war together. I have done the best I could for you. What Grant's features concealed on that day, we know now from him. What General Lee's feelings were, I do not know. But my own, which had been quite jubilant on the receipt of his letter, were sad and depressed. I felt like anything, rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly, and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought, and one for which there was the least excuse. But inside the house, what had gone on between the two chiefs? The witnesses watched and moved always with the hush of a sick-room, and after the first greeting, when they sat down, it became Grant who shrank from the point. He talked to Lee about Mexico and old times, and how good peace was going to be now. And twice Lee had to remind him of the business they had to do. Then Grant wrote, as always, simple and clear words. In the middle, his eye fell upon Lee's beautiful sword, and the chivalric act which it prompted has knighted his own spirit forever. The surrender, he instantly wrote, would not embrace the side-arms of the officers, nor their private horses or baggage. When Lee's eyes reached that sentence, his face changed for the first time, and he said, This will have a very happy effect upon my army. He then told what was new to Grant, that the horses ridden by the men were their own. Again the conqueror's tenderness lifted him into a realm diviner than the renown of victory. He ordered that the men take the animals home with them to work their little farms. To this nobility Lee's own responded. This will have the best possible effect upon the men, he said. Moved to greater frankness, he told Grant of his army's hunger, and for this also Grant at once provided. These are the things which the conqueror had done when he came out of the house with unrelaxed countenance and rode away. As he went, he heard firing from his lines. It was in honor of the news, already spreading. He stopped these salutes at once. The war is over, he said. The rebels are our countrymen again. Thus, when his strength had quelled the four-year storm, did a rainbow rise from his great heart across the heavens of our native land. End of chapter 5 Part 5